where we're going to wrap up today on this Jesus generation. And I want to talk about giving up our rights, giving up our rights. Now, we live in a culture where everybody wants to talk about their rights. I've got a right to protest. I've got a right to picket. I've got a right to complain. I've got a right to trash people on social media. I've got a right to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. Nobody's got a right to tell me I don't have a right. That has no place in the New Testament. Now, I'm grateful for the rights and privileges we have, but you don't deserve any of them. You don't merit any of them. You could have been born just as easily in a country where nobody has rights, and if you become a Christian, you're immediately a target for death. You see, the, the words of Jesus are very strange to a culture that is self-absorbed. Words like, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We join him in the fellowship of his sufferings. That we are to die to self. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That we are to follow him and obey him and serve him. Those kind of phrases from the New Testament just drive us a little crazy because our first reaction in our flesh is, well, what about me? What, what if there's something I want to do? And Jesus says, well, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. Well, that doesn't seem fair, but that's the paradox of Scripture. You live by dying. When you die, you begin to live. Jesus died so that we could live. That's the paradox of Scripture. And here we have in John chapter 12 an incredible passage of Scripture that often gets overlooked as we go to John 14, let not your heart be troubled. But he said this before he said that. John chapter 12 and verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. For if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him." Now, here's the context, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He did not say in John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. He said, the hour has come for me to be glorified. In other words, Jesus was looking past the cross to the resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit, and all that would happen as a result of his obedience to Christ, uh, to God, and to going to the cross and dying for our sins. He was looking beyond. Now, everyone he talked to about the cross knew immediately what he was talking about. If you saw somebody walking out of town carrying a cross, you knew one thing, they weren't coming back. A cross was an instrument of death. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was not something to be admired. It was a grotesque instrument of death, the worst possible way that you could kill somebody and execute somebody because of the pain and the time it took for them to die. And Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about 
when he said the hour has come to be glorified because the process that I'm about to initiate is going to bring the glorification of the Son and of the Father. So the first thing is giving up my rights is necessary for spiritual progress. If I want to grow, if I want to grow, if I want to do more than be a baby Christian, I've got to give up my rights. The hour has come. Jesus was committed to the cross. And here's the reality. It is simply this. Jesus did not ask for us to be better Christians. Jesus did not ask for us to be more religious. Jesus asked for us to die. And the word for Jesus would be surrender. You know, we used to sing when I was growing up that old hymn, I Surrender All. And, and I, I can tell you that most of the people that sang it were, were singing in their heart, I surrender as little as possible. You know, it's just as bad to sing a lie as it is to tell one. And the word that God has for us is the word of surrender. We are to give ourselves and give of ourselves for the gospel and for the kingdom. And so here's the question. Is there a call of God on your life that you are rejecting or ignoring or trying to push to the edges? Is there some way that God is speaking to you about surrender, some area that you need to let go of and release to the Lord that, that you keep pushing him back and God keeps saying, if you want to make progress, you're going to have to surrender that area. Winston Churchill said, men come to certain moments in their lives, the moment for which their whole life has been pointed. What a shame if he arrives unprepared and unqualified for what could be his finest hour. What a shame if we're unprepared and unqualified, if because of our resistance or our rejection or our pushing back of Christ and what he's asking us to do, and our hour comes, our moment that God has put us on this planet for, our hour comes and we are unqualified for the moment because we weren't surrendered when we got there. Secondly, giving up my rights is illustrated in a grain of wheat. In the agricultural society, they would have understood this. The Jews knew this illustration was rich in meaning. It had a twofold meaning. The grain of wheat would be an illustration of God's blessings and God's provision, but it would also be an illustration in certain circumstances of God's discipline and of death and of judgment. The grain of wheat is a symbol of God's word. The, the grain offering was used in the sacrificial system. It was a portion of the first fruits offering for the Old Testament Jews. It was a symbol of blessing, and in tough times, it was a symbol of God's provision. That's what the manna pictures. God provides. God makes a way where there is no way. God gave them food to eat. The absence of grain suggests judgment. In fact, Hosea says that uh, the judgment of God would come because of the worship of idols, and it would be like a stalk of grain without a head. In other words, it's no good. Isaiah compared the coming destruction to a reaper gathering grain. Jesus uses this image to show about his death and his resurrection of the paradox of life emerging from death. He took our judgment so we could have his blessings. 
And so in this, when Jesus says, truly, truly, he says, listen carefully. Your life, my life, is like a grain of wheat that needs to fall into the ground and die and then germinate and give life. Here's what the grain of wheat illustrates. The grain of wheat illustrates that there can be no glory without suffering, no life without death, and no victory without surrender. No glory without suffering, no life without death, no victory without surrender. What it means is simply this. His death makes possible our life. There is no Christian life. There is no abundant life. There is no victorious life unless he has died and risen from the grave and ascended and the Spirit of God has come to live in our lives. There is no possibility of life as God intended it apart from his death and then our dying to ourselves. A seed left in the bag is useless. It has to be planted so it can die and bring life. Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 36 said, You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now, we've got some options. Let's say that for the sake of the illustration that Jesus uses, we are seeds. We are a grain of wheat. We've got three ways we can respond to that. First of all, as seeds, we can resist the process. We can resist the process. Now, how does that happen? Well, Jesus talked about the sower, the seed, and the soil, and he said the sower sows a seed, and some of it falls on hard ground, and the minute it hits the ground, the, the birds come, and they eat it up. Some of you don't even get to your car with the Word of God. You sit and sing, and you listen, and you go to Sunday school, and before you can get to your car, the devil has already stolen what God tried to plant in your life because you didn't discipline yourself. You resisted the process. Let me tell you where a lot of seed gets stolen. A lot of seed gets stolen during the invitation. God puts a seed on your life and says, you need to die to yourself. You need to give this up. You need to be saved. You need to become more faithful in church. You need to start giving. And you go, I don't want to do that. And the devil just walked into your life and picked up the Word of God and snatched it out, and you missed everything. If you don't die to yourself, you will die a miserable person. If you do not die to yourself, if we do not daily die to ourselves, we can live for ourselves thinking we're going to be happy. At the end of the day, we're going to be miserable people because you've got nothing different in your life from what a lost person has. Now, we can resist the process. We can give ourselves to nourish others, to go into the ground, to be crushed, to die, to be bruised, to let God take our infirmities, our weaknesses, our, our shortcomings that we've given to him and turn us into something we could never be on our own. A grain of wheat can never be on its own what it needs to be. It has to go into the ground and die. Amen. Or we can just refuse to die and miss the blessing and miss the power and wonder, why does that person have such victory? And why does that person have such peace? And why does that person just seem to have something I don't have? Because somewhere along the line, they decided to die to themselves. 
You see, the, the world thinks a believer is weird because you get saved, and I got saved at, after I was out of high school, and, you know, I ran with certain people and did certain things and just kind of lived life on my own terms, went to church, played the church game, didn't know Jesus, but I knew the church game. I could answer the questions, check the box. I could check every box on the blue offering envelope, and I was lost as a goose. I could check them all, but I was lost. And then one day a guy gets saved, and all of a sudden his friends change. And his choices change, and his priorities change. And, and the world starts looking around saying, whatever happened to so-and-so? You know, he used to be at the bar every Friday night, and he used to always, you know, you know, you could always get a good filthy joke out of him. Whatever happened to so-and-so? He fell into the ground and he died. And what came up was a whole new person. Somebody saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ who understood what the grace of God had done for them. You, you know, I spent my whole teenage life trying to please people that didn't like me. And some of you are 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80, and you're still trying to please people that don't like you. And by the way, they're not even going to come to your funeral. And you're worried about what they think. And they're not going to give you a gift at your wedding. And they're not going to remember your birthday. They don't care. Listen, the day I gave my life to Christ, who I needed to please changed forever. I've got one person I have to please, and that's the Lord Jesus. If I don't please him, it doesn't matter if I make everybody else happy. I mean, if I get voted pastor of the year in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a big whoop de doo but if I... You know, if I got voted that, it wouldn't matter if I wasn't pleasing God. You see, when you get saved, when you give your life to Christ, when you die to yourself, who you have to please changes. And, and my goal before I was saved was not to die to my plans. I had my plans. I was going to go to Ole Miss, and I was going to be a lawyer, and I was going to make a lot of money. The day that I gave my heart to Jesus, those plans started to change. And then I ended up in the ministry. Why? Because I had to die to my plans. I had to die to where I wanted to go to school. I had to die to what I thought I would major in. I had to die to everything. Now, here's a word to parents. Some of you as parents, if you're just God honest, if it's just you and Jesus alone, some of you as parents are scared to death that your children are going to be sold out to Jesus Christ. First of all, because it's going to embarrass you on your lack of being sold out to Jesus Christ. Secondly, you're more concerned about them being successful and getting a good job than you are being witnesses for Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you something. Whether you've got a preschooler or a child that's in their 20s or 30s or a child or a young person, I just want to ask you something. As a parent, are you so committed to the will of God and to the glory of God that if God called your kids overseas to serve him in a foreign field where their lives would be threatened on a daily basis and you wouldn't see them but once every four years, are you okay with that? If you're not, you have not died. Come on, and by the way, they're not your kids. They're not your kids. Say, so, yeah, they are. They got my name. They're not your, they're God's kids first. And if you haven't put your children on the altar, then you haven't died to yourself. 
Because some of you, it's more important that they go to the school you went to and they get a degree and they get a big job so you can show up at the cocktail party and say, you know, my kid, my kid's driving the most expensive BMW you can drive and lives in a gated community with, I mean, they got, they got 12 people that just clean their house. So everybody go, ooh, wow. Hey, if your kid drops dead, it's just stuff that's going to be sold. Are you committed in the raising of your children to raise up a generation that so passionately wants to see the glory of God in this world that they sign off the rights to their lives to be whatever God calls them to be, to go wherever God calls them to go, to do whatever God calls them to do so that you can say, I was a part of dying to myself and dying to these kids that God gave me so that God could take them and do with them not the American dream, but the gospel mission. Thirdly, giving up my rights brings freedom. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. New English Bible says the man who loves himself is lost. Oh, man, we love ourselves, don't we? Now, don't look at me like you're so righteous. We love ourselves, don't we? You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said. But, you know, if, if I'm going to have freedom, then the stuff I have and the things I want to do and all my little checklist of what I want my life to be like has to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, if any of this is of you, let me pick it up. If it's not of you, I don't need it. I don't need it. It's amazing what we don't need that we think we have to have. But if we want freedom, the man who loves himself is lost. Look at these words from Luke 12, verse 16. Then he told them this story. The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather in all my grain and goods, and I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. Just then... God showed up and said, fool, tonight you die. And your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. The lust for more is killing us. You want to know why the debt of America is so great and why your personal debt is so great? Because you are driven by the lust for more. The house you have is not good enough, so you need another one. The car you have is not good enough, so you need another one. The clothes you bought two weeks ago are not good enough, so you need some more. The, the stuff you've got, you know, the pots and pans that you're using aren't good enough, so you need some more. And so what do you do? Now, I can tell you it's hard for me to find anybody that pays cash for anything. I mean, they go to McDonald's and put a McDonald's, put a credit card down for a $4 hamburger and just slide the machine through. I went to Chick-fil-A this week and I, and I saw Jason there and I, I handed him the exact change. I said, Jason, when's the last time you got the exact change? He said, not often. 
Now, really, let me ask you something. Is anything worth 18% interest that you're going to be hungry four hours later? And you know why we can't give? You know why we can't sacrificially give? You know why we can't do all the things that God's called us to do? Because we've squandered it on ourselves. We've kept the grain. We've got all our grain in our little jar in our house, and we're trying to make sure that our grain is protected and nobody can get to it. And Jesus is saying, if you'll let me have the grain, I'll do something with it you can't do on your own. Mark Twain defines civilization as the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Proverbs 30 and verse 8, Keep deception and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Warren Wiersbe said, People say that money does not satisfy, but it does satisfy if you want to live on that level. People who are satisfied only with the things that money can buy are in great danger of losing the things that money can't buy. Henry David Thoreau wrote in his journal, the man is the riches whose pleasures are cheapest, and then went on to say this, a man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone. One of the signs of dying to self is investing in eternity. You know, you're not going to take it with you. You're not going to take it with you. Do you know what my generation, you know, the greatest generation was the generation before mine. They were the people that fought the war and won our freedom and allowed us to have the American dream. My generation, the average is the money that my parents, people my age, our parents, the money that they saved up the estates that they built, the houses, the cars, whatever they had, is spent completely in 18 months. That means what it took for the average person my age, what it took my parents 50 years to make, my generation can spend it all in 18 months. Now, I just don't know how that's going to look in the presence of Jesus, but I don't think it's going to look very good. I don't think it's going to look very good that we spend, 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 spend on self, 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 and then want God to protect us from the persecution of Christians in America. I don't know how that works in your economy, but it doesn't work good in God's economy. Number four, giving up my rights is a call to all of us. He says, if anyone serves me, verse 26, he must follow me. So here's the deal. You can boil down the call of God on our lives to three simple words. Be with me. Be with me. Which simply means this. Wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. Whatever Jesus is doing, that's what I want to do. Whatever Jesus says, I want to obey it. Whatever Jesus calls me to do, I want to do it. I want to be with him. I'm not talking about just your quiet time. I'm talking about in our lives to be with him. Much of what we do is nothing more than a cheap anesthetic to deaden the point and the pain of an empty life. You know why impulse buying is so big? It tries to, it is, it's a drug. Impulse buying is no different than addictions. It's a drug. If I buy this, I'll feel better. Until the bill comes. 
If I get this now, I'll feel better until I have to pay for it. It's to deaden the pain of an empty life. Now, I'm convinced one of the reasons we stay so busy and we run so hard and we go from A to B to C to D and go from here to there and we got to be busy. I mean, you know, we can't sit down. We got to go. We can't sit down. We got to do. We can't sit down. We got we to gotta go here. We got to go there. We got to go over there. We got to go over there. Hey, the weekend's coming. We ought to go somewhere. Hey, the weekend's coming. We ought to go somewhere else. Hey, the weekend's coming. We've been gone the last two weekends. Let's be gone a third weekend. Hey, we got to go. We got to go. You know why you go so much? To cover up a meaningless life that you don't want to think about. Because if you drop dead in your going, is there going to be anything of eternal value in your life? You know what the world does? The world anesthetizes itself with busyness. And too often the church does the same. We get so busy that we don't have time to do what God says because we've already got our planned out prearranged schedule of how we want God to work in our lives. And our yes is only to ourselves. It's never to our God. Lastly, giving up my rights glorifies God and changes the culture. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. That's a lot different from I'm entitled. I'm entitled. Jesus was born to die. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He was born to die so that we could be born again to live. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, what shall I do? He said, what shall I say? Listen, every one of us pray one of two prayers. Lord, me first. Or Lord, glorify your name. Me first. Lord, here's my list. And that's the way we pray. Most of us pray like this. Lord, me first. Lord, I need this. I need that. I want you to bless my kids. I want you to do this for me. I want you to have health. Here's my prayer list. All the things I want you to do for me, 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 me. And Lord, thank you for all your many blessings. Amen. You know what would shorten your prayer list and make it more effective? If the first thing you prayed was, Lord, glorify your name. Now, Lord, what do you want me to pray about? In light of, I just ask you to glorify your name. What do you want me to pray about? One of two prayers, Lord, me first, or Lord, glorify your name. Die to self, that's a game changer. Now, when I think about the Jesus movement, some of the critics of the Jesus movement said, well, it didn't last. Well, you know, neither does a bath, but it doesn't hurt us every now and then. One critic of the Jesus movement said, well, it was just a fad. It, it faded away, and people got real excited, and a lot of things happened, and, but it wasn't long before it was over. Listen, it is true in any great revival that there are people that get stuck in the shallow end of the pool. They get stuck in the emotion and the excitement of the moment. They get caught up in the wave of it. And they enjoy it, and they're blessed by it. But they, they get caught up in, in all that, but then it, it dies off, and then they just kind of go back to life as normal. But then there are people 
who when God sends a great move and when revival comes, they never get over it. You remember the letter I read you last week from Keith Moore? The last sentence? I'm still running on the gas of those days. Still running on the gas of those days. You know what I'm running on? Still running on the gas of those days. Still burns in my heart. Still gets me every time I think about it. If we don't die to self, then we'll get over what God's done in our life. I've never gotten over it. In the book, The Jesus Movement, Edward Plowman wrote it in 1971. He visited a church in a town of 2,400 people. The town had 2,400 people in Kentucky. There he walked into a weekend youth retreat that had been going on for 12 days. A weekend youth retreat, now in its 12th day. This is what he said. Teenagers came from miles around. More than 300 prayed to receive Christ in services. Young people wept at the altar, embraced and prayed for each other. They held rallies at the high school, organized lunchtime prayer groups, witnessed in halls and outside. Long-haired boozers and dopers received Christ. Parents and teachers told me they could hardly believe the dramatic change of attitude in some youth. Clusters of non-Christians around high school spoke of their friends' changed lives and of the joy they sensed on campus. Enemies of long-standing untangled the discord of years in one unforgettable moment of forgiveness and outpouring of Christian love. Maybe it's time that we quit playing church and checking our boxes and died to cultural and convenient Christianity so that one more time before Jesus comes back, he would raise up a generation that is ready to attack hell with a water pistol if they have to. George Mueller, greatest man of faith probably that ever lived, started orphanages, feeding thousands of children, would bow his head to pray and thank God for the food, and there was no food in the orphanage and no food in the kids' bowls. And while he was praying, food would show up at the door. You know why? Because George Mueller died to himself. They asked George Mueller, what's the secret of your life? And this is what he said. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, taste, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of brethren and friends. So here's the question that's coming up on the screen. Will you be remembered as one who lived only to die? Or will you be known as one who died to self to live for the glory of God? I want to ask you to stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. And I want to invite you to do something this morning. I want to invite you to your own funeral. I want you to hear what I said, so I need everybody looking at me. I'm inviting you this morning to your own funeral.
for you to die to what you think you want to do so that you can live to the glory of God. For you to die to what you think your kids ought to become so that you can give them to God. I'm inviting you this morning to your own funeral because listen, somebody, I told the senior adults this this week at the senior adult luncheon, somebody's going to say the amen over your life one day. Are we going to have to lie and make up things that you were sold out to Jesus and you love Jesus and you love the church and you gave and were committed to the cause of Christ? Are we going to have to lie so that people walk out of there and say, who was that preacher talking about? Or are we going to be able to tell the truth? Here's a person that died to themselves and they gave their days, their life, their influence, their money, their time, their will, their children. They gave their days to God. I'm inviting you to your funeral. Who needs to come to this altar and die today? We're not going to sing. I'm just going to ask Heather to play. Who needs to come to the altar and die today? Because if you stand there and you don't need to die, you didn't even need to bother to come to church today. Because you, the devil's already stolen your seed. If you don't need to die, if you've already died, that's fine. But if you have not died to yourself yet, you need to be at this altar if you've not died to your will, to your agenda, to your plans, to your dreams, if you've not died to yourself to say, Lord, your life, mine is yours so that yours can be mine. I give myself to you so that you can give all of yourself to me. I want what you want for my life. I want your will for my life. I want to die to myself I want my legacy to be that I loved God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. That I gave everything of myself to you. That I went to the altar and I made myself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Have we died to the world, its approval, its censure, to our approval or blame of even brethren and friends? Have we died to our opinions, our preferences, our taste, and our will? God, in this place, on this day, may there be a death that brings life, a death of ourselves. Lord, you see these many people on their knees at this altar and up and down these aisles. And God, I pray today in the name of Jesus that this is a watershed moment. This is a memorial stone moment in our lives that we don't want to live meaningless lives. That we give ourselves, that we give our children, that we give our future, that we give our reputation over to you so that in dying to ourselves, you might live in power in and through our lives. Lord God, there's so much that you want to do in our country and in our land, but it starts inside the church. It must start with the people of God. And so God, today we on our knees and, and with our hearts open to you say, yes, Lord, we, we want to lose our lives so we can find them. We want to die to ourselves so that we can find the life abundant that you have for us in Christ. We want to lay our agendas aside so that your will and your plans and your goals can become ours. Lord, this is not a 
me first. This is glorify your name. So I pray, Father, as you look down on this congregation, as you see these many at this altar, I pray that you are pleased in heaven with the aroma of sacrifice coming from this altar. I pray that, that our lives going out of here and from here will be pleasing to you. So that at the end of our lives, when the amen is said over our lives, it will be that they lived, they existed, they breathed, they functioned for the glory of God. Let it be said of us that we followed the Lord our God fully because we one day went and had our own funeral and preached our own funeral when we said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. We pray in the name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen.